Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Hey friends, welcome to Working in Yoga, the perfectionism season. If you follow me on Instagram, you will have seen that last week I talked a lot about how good I am at being quote unquote perfect. I was raised in a culture and household where being good kept me safe, kept me relevant, and kept me rewarded for how well I performed at all the tasks. And guess what? Yoga very much reinforced this idea for me. So what I am doing with these interviews is asking experts what they think about this culture of perfection in the yoga space, why we are this way, and what we can do to shift our thinking. The first expert I have in the docket is Dr. Sham Ranganathan, the founder of yogaphilosophy.com. And Dr. Ranganathan is a philosopher by trade and training. So he comes to us with a whole host of amazing takeaways grounded in critical thinking and the yoga sutras. I think you're going to especially love his explanation of virtue ethics versus yoga philosophical reasoning. It puts so much context on why we are always looking for that quote unquote good or perfect person to follow. And he reminds us that this is definitely not the path of yoga. But before we begin, this is the part where I ask you to like and subscribe to the podcast. There are a whole bunch of reasons why this helps, but most importantly of those, it tells the algorithm to show this podcast to other people like you so that we can all gather together around the water cooler. And step two, if you're loving what I'm making here on Working in Yoga, please leave a review or rating on your podcast app if that allows. Again, it helps the algorithm know that you like my content and shows it to other people. Also, if you are looking for more details about the podcast and you want to see other cool offerings and stats from the yoga space, you better head to my newsletter. It comes out weekly and the link to sign up is in the show notes. I want to pause and also say thank you to our sponsor, Sunlight Streams and Sunlight Apothecary. Sunlight Streams is an online self-care blog that doesn't share life hacks, but shares real world practical ways in which we can get better at caring for ourselves. And bonus, their methodology is rooted in decades of yoga practice. What's not to love? Check out their writing at www.thesunlightexperience.com backslash blog. Now, let's get into thick, the thick of this perfectionism thing with Dr. Sham Ranganathan. Hey friends, welcome to Working in Yoga. Okay, so this week on the podcast, we are continuing our exploration talking about perfectionism within the yoga industry space, and I have an expert on the podcast today. Dr. Sham Ranganathan is here, and Dr. Ranganathan is going to talk to us all about how we got here. So tell us, 
who you are and what you do. Great. Thank you. So, um, so I, my day job, I'm a philosophy professor. Um, I got into yoga kind of accidentally. I did an MA in South Asian studies. Well, I mean, yoga was part of my kind of my home life and ancestral practice, but like as a, as a, like a very committed practice, but also topic of research, it was kind of accidental. Um, after an MA in uh, philosophy, I took a, a break. I need, I felt like I needed some air debris. So I did an MA in South Asian studies and it wasn't air debris. That was like, it was intense. All the things that I was annoyed about with respect to graduate work and philosophy, the increasing kind of white supremacy in the, in the topics and the, in the sources, uh, like it's, it was even worse in South Asian studies. That like and South Asian studies is like, is an area of studies and it covers like India, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan. And so you would think that this sphere of, you know, space of people interested in South Asia would be really interested in learning. But what I found was typical is people would use like a frame, like of, of Western expectations that they, that they acquired kind of uncritically and passively and then use that as like a frame in explaining what happened in South Asia. So South Asians couldn't ever say anything critical or couldn't contribute to our research questions um, if they said something that like white people didn't say because the entire the entire like uh, method was uh, basically trying to see if brown people said things that white people said. It was really that ridiculous. And the topic that really popped in my mind was like, there was this myth and it's still widely circulated that South Asians weren't interested in moral and political philosophy, which is exactly what you would teach if you want to naturalize the colonization of a brown tradition, right? These people had no interest in technical questions of how to live in public with others, right? And so there's this kind of uh, myth that's propagated that they weren't interested in this. They were just all religious and spiritual waiting for the afterlife and uh, pure nonsense, sheer nonsense. But um, that kind of set me up for my further research. So I, I started writing on this kind of mysteriously absent. It's not absent. It's like it's hidden in plain sight. Uh, South Asian moral philosophy, they had a word dharma that they used to talk about moral political issues. And, you know, what, what I find in Indology South Asian studies is people would like, they would decide that the topic was ethical if it agreed with their views. They wouldn't, that you know, the brown philosopher was never allowed to say anything that would be challenge white supremacy or its basic assumptions. Then I went on to a PhD in philosophy. I kind of, I had it <laughs> with South Asian I thought I was just gonna like leave and just go back to my people. And I so I did my PhD on translation. I was interested in like, how do we circumvent all of this stupid where we're trying to understand others as though they're ourselves? Like, how can we really just understand people who are don't share our views and our experiences? And so I was interested in the question of translation in general and translating moral philosophy in particular. And uh, while I was writing that dissertation and I was learning and kind of via research, figuring out how you would do it right, I took on the challenge of translating the Yoga Sutra. So that's my published uh, translation of the Yoga Sutra through Penguin Black Classics, came out in 2008. But I was kind of doing it on the side while I was thinking technically about um, about translation. And then I just, you know, I became a moral philosophy professor. That's my day job. And then a few years ago, my wife was like, you should teach yoga stuff to people. I'm like, no one's interested. All they want is someone who talks about how they were raised on an ashram and walk in and quit the pajama with incense. I just, 
but I was surprised. There, there are, you know, I was wrong. I just kind of generalized. There are lots of people who want to learn and interested. Along the way, yoga, I, I decided, I realized that yoga, according to Patanjali, is like my, is my chosen uh, practice. Um, so, uh, but it's not something separate from my scholarship. It, it kind of informs what it is to be a good scholar, in my view, because, you know, whereas all the stupid is about trying to understand everything in terms of your experience and your perspective, yeah. yoga begins with, the yoga sutra begins with the choice. Either we can do that, which is in yoga, or we take responsibility for ordering what we can contemplate so we can respect our autonomy, right? And that's what a, that's what a researcher does. So, so I kind of, so yoga has become very uh, all consuming, but it's, it's, you know, how I do my research, how I do my publications, um, how I write, how I teach. And when you practice yoga, you know, you're interested in options. So you can teach all sorts of options. It's not just, there's not just one picture. So anyways, that's kind of, that's kind of, you know, how I get here. I started yogaphilosophy.com a few years ago for this reason. And, and yeah. So I just have to say, I remember when yogaphilosophy.com came on the scene. So I've been teaching for way too long to be in this job, 23 years, <laughs> like way too long. But I remember you coming on the scene, starting to make commentary online and you made everyone uncomfortable all sides of all people yeah. <laughs> and i was like there's something to this there's something to the human who comes here and it makes folks in the social justice yoga space uncomfortable makes folks who are in the you know very sort of what i would call like the white woman wellness space uncomfortable and i kind of really love that because there has to be that person there who is speaking the truth to the philosophy, right? Like in in my mind, and I've been lucky enough to see you speak. I saw you speak at Sitar, the IOYT conference, not this past summer, but the summer before. Like, and you did it again. You just went in the room and you were like, everybody's uncomfortable, but here is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I have that. I have that effect. <laughs> You, I hope you like that effect because I like you for that effect. To Thank be you very much. <laughs> Thank you. That's like, very kind of you. It's <laughs> it's difficult to it's difficult to sustain because you have to deal with people's uh, aggression and their on the, the issues they haven't dealt with. So all I'm doing is I'm triggering their samskaras, all yeah. the stuff that they've just subconsciously left on autopilot. And I come and say something that that you can't make sense of in terms of those subscribers. And then people feel they're compelled to speak out by by force of the, these samskaras. And, um, you know, they can't handle themselves. That's the funny thing. Right? <laughs> like, not me. Yes. I haven't really done anything except for said something, but they can't handle themselves. Yeah. So I actually, because this is kind of where I wanted to go with this, is this idea that no matter what side of the fence, so to speak, that you're on in the yoga industry space that you're working in, like, the ultimate truth is we should be okay with being uncomfortable a little bit. Like, isn't that kind of what we're doing here? And yet we slide into this idea that if we can just be more perfect or better, yeah. better philosophers better you know western yoga folks and i was like what if we can't ever be better western yoga folks what if we're just in a big Good. mess okay great so here's my way into this topic 
Okay, and uh, it's going to be a bit of a diversion. So one of the things that I learned as a matter of my research, uh, well, first of all, this might sound really strange, but like what everybody was doing and what most people do is they don't employ logic to understand the options. Logic is a, is a weird thing. Logic isn't about what's true. It's about what follows from something. So, you know, I can give you an argument where everything's false, but it's uh, it'll succeed logically according to this criteria called validity. Uh, logical validity says if the premises of an argument is true, the conclusion has to be true. So here's an example. The moon is made out of um, squash. Squashes are a kind of fish. Therefore, the moon is a kind of fish. So everything I said is false. But if the premises are true, the conclusion has to be true. This is what we try and teach philosophy students. We try to teach them reason because we don't know what's true, right? So if you start to assess everything in terms of what you believe, that's just your attitude. That's not a fact. Like the fact that you, like, you know, that you believe something doesn't make it true. It's more of funny psychological feature of you. But also, if we don't know what is true, we can't arrive at new conclusions if we're always trying to center ourselves and our perspective as the way. So we try and teach our students logic and then we throw a bunch of philosophy at them and then we say go use these skills and try and extract the theory or the argument that you know this philosopher is using that would entail the kinds of claims that they're making so philosophy is already this discipline where like unless you're willing to do that uh it's uncomfortable because nothing like nobody cares what you believe like we have this weird idea that like everybody has their has a right to their opinion but like why an opinion is just an attitude that a thought is true i don't know why i have a right <laughs> to an attitude that a thought is because an opinion you can't even reason about an opinion right so uh if i believe that the moon is a squash that's just a funny thing about my psychology i can't draw any inferences from my psychology but the thought the moon is a squash oh, well, what follows from that, right? I could think about what would follow from that claim. So, and this is the way the Yoga Sutras start. It says, well, look, we can either try and understand everything in terms of like how we feel about things. And then we undermine our independence because what happens then is we're stuck with the perspective that we're using as our explanation. It becomes our prison. It's an ignorance. Or we take responsibility for organizing the thoughts, the data, we see the conclusion, this is the yoga stitta vritti naroda, and then the individual has their space back, right? So when I'm teaching philosophy to my students, we study all sorts of options and nobody has to believe anything that I'm teaching. It's just so irrelevant. So everybody gets their space back to make up their own mind and to choose themselves. So ordinarily what goes on is people aren't using these, uh, so I call this explication rendering explicit, theories, thoughts, commitments. And what people usually do is interpret. They use their propositional attitudes or attitudes towards thoughts like hope, fear, belief. And then they use these as an explanation. And if you do that, you can't reason, but you also create Yoga Sutra book two, Sutra three, you create um, a sense of self, asmita, egotism on the basis of that perspective. And then your whole activity is geared towards normalizing that. So anything that doesn't fit with that perspective is seen as a threat. It will agitate you and you will feel the need to get rid of it, right? So this is the very ordinary way we live if we don't make this choice to practice yoga. Okay, so once I became really clear about 
this methodological distinction, I went back and I kind of reviewed the options of South Asian moral philosophy. And I discovered there are actually four basic ethical theories in the South Asian tradition. There's only three in the Western tradition. There's this idea of virtue ethics, that you have to be a good person in order to know what to do. So if you're not a good person, you got to go find a good person who will tell you what to do. Yes. Then there's consequentialism that says that there are these good ends, like say the reduction of suffering or the maximization of happiness. And we have to, uh, whatever that is that justifies the means. Okay. And then there's deontology that says, well, there are lots of good things to do, but some we have special reason to do, and those are our duties. And if the, the special things are things to avoid, those are our rights. So these are the three basic um, ethical theories of the Western tradition. And what we lack in the Western tradition is yoga, which is the opposite of virtue ethics. So virtue ethics says you have to start with the good person and what they want is the right thing to do. Yoga says you start with devotion to the ideal of right choosing and doing, which is Ishvara. And then you practice what it is to be independent by practicing its essential traits of tapas, self-challenge, and swadhyaya, self-determination. Self yep. Okay, so to the point of feeling uncomfortable, tapas, you know, going to the gym, it literally means heat production. That kind of exertion is not comfy, uh, but it's good for you because what you're doing is you're pushing back against restrictions and boundaries that have set in in your life. So when I look at what's going on, what you're describing with this perfectionism, it wouldn't happen if people were actually devoted to Ishra, if they're actually practicing yoga. Because then there's no there's no standard you're trying to mimic. It's a devotional, because the moment you accomplish something, there's the next step, right? So I think about great musicians or great athletes. They never stop this transformative practice because it's, what sustains them is the devotion. So they're never going to feel um, exhausted or like it's pointless if they're not accomplishing something because what makes it meaningful isn't the accomplishment, but the devotion. So that's the only way you could stick to something long enough to, to, to make it right, to do it right. So what you were describing seems to me to be just a complete outcome of not actually practicing yoga, but making use of these very common three ethical theories of the Western tradition. Which we seem to have conflated in our industry and probably culturally speaking here in the West, we've conflated that into, into marketing, right? Like it is yeah. easy to sell that to people. Yeah. Like there's our in to right. get people in the room so that we can pay our bills because exactly. we're hungry folks. Yes. And, and education's hard. Students don't know what they don't know. So if you're going to try and market to students, it's very difficult. They they are the worst. So the customer is always right. It just fails when the product is education because the customer is not in a position to know until they've learned. Right? Right. So um, and they don't and they're not in a position to really adjudicate whether they have. So it's a, it's un, until they've learned enough to appreciate the difference between ignorance and knowledge. And you get to these methodological skills of research and stuff. So absolutely, there's a marketing a bias against actually teaching yoga. Well, and I and I do believe and I feel this, too. So and I'll own I own a yoga studio. Right. There's tension in this idea that there's a very practicality that I have 14 people who I need to keep employed. I have a landlord yes. who requires my rent. Yes. I would like to sometimes feed my family if I yes. can. Like, 
all those things. But the game being, can we do that, that marketing, that business side of it within the ethical and philosophical context that yoga provides us? Great. So I'm going to bring up my new book uh, that I've got coming out in April called Yoga Anti-Colonial Philosophy. And one of the first things I address in chapter one is this question. A lot of times people, they hear me teaching and then they're kind of conveying this information and they're like, I can't, how do I do this, right? Like, how do I actually, uh, and it's actually very easy. You just have to frame what you're teaching as this devotional practice where each one of us is then going to take the opportunity to to, to rise to that challenge of the tapas and the swadhyaya, right? And then you go on to teach whatever it is that you're teaching, but what you're doing is you're taking responsibility to frame the exercise. So people... People come in, they buy the product for whatever psychological reason. And, and there's not, you don't have to lie that, you know, you could, you could sell the improvements, right? Yeah. That, that, that there's, there, you're not, that's not fraudulent that, you know, people who practice these things see improvements in a number of areas of their life. But when you start to teach, you make very clear what you're teaching, which isn't the asana, it's the practice. And the asana is just a way to do the practice, right? So I think it's really easy, but I think then that people have to actually care about philosophy. Um, and they have to get over this idea that like, whatever they're used to, or they experience or their beliefs is, is the starting point. Yeah, I think there is a tension for a lot of people in the fact that, especially in the beginning, especially when you start really diving deep into like, okay, so this is my practice, this is my philosophical practice that I do for myself, but now it's also my business, right? And then it's my job, it's this is for me been my job for 20 years. And there's a tension, right, that that is difficult to release this idea that we are trying to be good stewards of the, I am trying to be a good steward of the tradition, but then it also requires us to be creative as business owners. And it's very, I think for people to go, well, I'm just going to do what I see other people doing. Yes. Um, It's while I don't know that I think it's the right choice. I understand and see how that is the easy choice. So I don't see, I don't see this quite. So um, I don't, quite see the incongruity for the following reason that yoga is subversive so you start somewhere but you 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 it's like there's like a really good bait it's like you everybody starts someplace yeah and really the place that you start if you're really hardcore with yoga is dissatisfaction that's the beginning of Ishra Pranidana. There's no no reason to be devoted to Ishra sovereignty if you're happy with it. <laughs> it's like when you appreciate <laughs> yeah. this yeah, is not yeah. good right? That sets the context. So that people want things and they feel like things are not okay. That you can, you can make hay with that. That's not incongruous. And whatever cycle, whatever association they have that draws them to you, even if that means that you just have to mimic what's uh, ordinarily expected in advertising, right? that's fine as long as you know that the practice is subversive and so once you get people in through the door you're not making them do anything they're not choosing to do and you're upfront about what you're going to be doing but you also add this is the practice like then it's an educational 
Yeah. So I guess that's just it. You can do all the usual marketing, but you have to be committed to the educational component, which is not a huge thing. It's really yeah. a small thing. But I think it, it means that we have to understand that teaching yoga is about sharing our practice. Yeah. And so you have to really be clear, transparent about what that is. Right. So if you're not really clear and transparent about what your practice is, then I think it becomes harder. I am actually okay. I'm really excited to ask you this next question because it's been something in my brain that I feel like you've been describing. So what to me you're describing is essentially good andragogy. This is how we teach to other adults. We need buy in to tell them what we're doing so that they agree to continue to learn from us. Yes, that's what a teacher does. Yes. Within this industry, I see so many people push back at the idea that our job is to be a teacher of a thing. Right. Because people don't know. That's why. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If they knew, they would be proud of that. Yeah, sure. They'd have no clue. Yeah. Right? Most people, I mean, what passes for yoga education is like uh, is an embarrassment in most cases. Yes. Right. Um, yes. And the people who are like the minimal standards. I'm not saying these are bad minimal standards that you find in Yoga Alliance requires that the people teaching things like the Yoga Sutra the Bhagavad Gita know that understand it. And the most people, I can tell you, it's not easy. I'm like, I've been at this for 30 years and I had to do a lot of work to like <laughs> to decolonize and pull back. So I get it that most people are not really in a position to do it, but that's not really an excuse. You have to go, you have to, you know, you have to go and learn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's that's what's going on there. I think especially with yoga studio owners, you're not an example, but so often I find them really fragile people who don't think they they are qualified to be running the business. So they don't really want to invest in, you know, people like me <laughs> who could actually help. <laughs> Because they're, they're, they're kind of embarrassed, right, to have whatever mistakes that they've made. It's the wrong attitude. They should be happy to, like, make changes for the better. But I find a lot of times the leadership gets um, nervous. Yes. Because they haven't dealt with their own um, lack of qualifications. <laughs> yes. And I, I think this is sort of somewhat a result of a fairly wholly unregulated industry that then in typical situations, people in leadership have support of some kind to be able to say, this is what leadership training looks like. This is what ethical management that looks like. This is how if you lead a team of people, your job is literally to tell them. Yes. how you've made mistakes yeah. like to yeah, be a sure. vulnerable person right it's terrible i don't recommend it yeah i know it's hard like i mean if i can draw an analogy to what i do uh, i'm pretty i don't i'm not i'm not i don't bark orders i just kind of explain things yeah and people get upset because they don't want to have they don't want to have to do the thinking they just want to do the believing Yes. Right. And um, and so the leadership requires a certain courage. And I think also an op. So this is where the shraddha comes in, the optimism and the practice. You have yeah. to take the practice seriously, that the practice will create opportunities for you that you don't foresee yet. And some of the op like the opportunities that come from actually having the courage to do your practice is you'd start to draw people who are actually interested, not the people who pay you and then are upset with what you are giving them right so right. there you know there is a kind of advantage to that actual customers were happy <laughs> with what you have to teach yeah. 
Yes. I mean, from a business perspective, it is very easy to run a business when the vast majority of your people understand what's happening in your space. Then they're quite happy, I have yeah. found. Yeah, yeah. So I'm interested in your, like, so let's talk about that fragile yoga studio owner kind of mentality, right? Yeah. What would you encourage leadership to do? Because I, I see this a lot in studio owners. I see this a lot in festival organizers. I yeah. see this a lot in teacher trainers. What's their first step? Right. So I think they should congratulate themselves for running a business. That's not everybody can do that. Yeah. But that's not the same as knowing what you're well, knowing what the knowing understanding the product. So you could like just money could just flow through your studio. It doesn't mean that you actually understand the product that you're supposed to be selling. Yeah. So then I think you have to take being a student seriously. And I think this is the thing. Like I'm a researcher. That just means you're a student for life. When there's no other teacher, you just go have to go out and figure it out yourself, right? Yeah. I'm always learning. I'm learning from other researchers and sometimes not even from them. I just go look at the data and then I'm like, oh, this is weird. And I have to start doing the work myself. So there's no embarrassment in, in saying you don't know. Like that's like the best teachers, the people who push knowledge are always people like, I don't know, like, and then they go try to figure it out. But there's a real <laughs> weird, um, you know, this comes down to the, to not taking yoga seriously. Like if we think that we have to be a good person in order to know what to do, then we think that, oh, well, I have to be a good teacher, right? So then it makes it very difficult for you to come up, come to terms with your own incompetence. Then you feel like, oh, I'm not qualified to do anything. Not true. But if you're a virtue ethicist, that's going to accomplish. And then if you think that you're like, if you're a consequentialist and you think that, well, the goal is just some end, like making money or people happy. And if you're pulling bodies through this door and people are buying the yoga club, you think, oh, I'm succeeding, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you're a deontologist, you might have this hardcore view about what the practice is. And then, you know, everybody's, uh, you, you're just happy that everybody's doing this hardcore thing, but that's also just not yoga. So I think yeah. that there, you have to have, like, if you're actually practicing yoga, it's really easy to say, I don't know. It's like not a big deal, right? And you yeah. just, that just means yeah. like, now you know what the work is that you have to do. You have to go figure it out. You have to learn. But if you're not practicing yoga, it feels uh, like an admission of failure, guilt, incompetence, all the wrong. So non-yogis will never make things better because they can't deal with the fact that there's work they have to do. I'm going to pull on this virtue ethics thread a little bit because sure. I actually think a lot of us here in the West really subscribe to that sort of virtue ethics yeah. mentality, right? Yes. Uh, myself included as a re recovering like virtue ethics person it's the oldest ethical theory in the western tradition going back to Plato and aristotle and then it, it got incorporated into christianity by uh by the romans and the church fathers it's a basically orthodox christianity is like 80 percent plato and aristotle and like maybe 20 yeah. percent the gospels or something or even less <laughs> but it, it and you know the u.s is like a big like that was founded by like hardcore christians who were yes fleeing uh britain etc so it's everywhere culturally um, and and i have said often i'm exhausted at being a good person it's very tiring i'm very that, like by what standard too i don't know <laughs> it's it's true I'm like, like keep my standards low i'm i'm awesome <laughs> i'm like the best person i know <laughs> Will you do a side-by-side -side comparison for me of like, so traditional Judeo-Christian virtue ethics versus what yoga's expectation yeah, would be? Yeah, I'm not, I'm often, I don't know enough about Judeo. I have 
rabbi students who are like who constantly yeah. remind me that like they teach me things I'm like oh let's just talk about kind of Christian because there see Christianity was deliberately first of all it's a religion made by the Romans not yep. by Jesus, nope. uh, made by the people who crucified Jesus and somehow they get off the hook it's really weird so <laughs> but it ends up they, it ends up kind of drawing heavily on Plato and Aristotle so let's 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 have that as one like that virtue ethics and, and compare it to yoga is that the idea yes 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 all right so um in yoga being devoted to Ishra is not being devoted to the good person. It's about being devoted to the right person. But that person disappears the moment you take on the responsibility of that devotion. Then you take on the challenge of practicing sovereignty yourself by take, you know, practicing its unconservatism, the tapas and the self-governance, the swadhyaya. So what that means then is that when you decide to practice yoga, you are taking responsibility to really figure things out for yourself. There's no one else there to be your boss. Even if someone is better at something, the right thing to do is not just whatever they say. So like you could consider it, but it's you've taken on the responsibility to like make these kinds of decisions yourself as part of your practice. And, um, and you see knowledge and understanding as something that's a byproduct of this self-work, right? So it's not that you can't, other people can't be supportive of your learning, but the but the learning and the practice is really your work. And the reason it works is because it's a it's a practice of getting rid of ego egotism. You're you're not you're rejecting the idea that understanding is about how you see things in your perspective, etc. And you're you're taking on this work of of challenging your own prejudices and assumptions while being transparent about your own choices. And then because all of this happens within the context of devotion to Ishra, not every choice is, is possible. Only those that are consistent with the larger project of devotion to sovereignty are going to be permissible. So I, you know, um, yeah, John Stuart Mill was um, a very famous utilitarian philosopher. He's also a uh, his day job was the British East India Company, and he's famous for propagating this idea that, well, uh, an advanced society should be built around this freedom for people to experiment, and then also decide their own values. So he took, he just stole that straightforward from South Asian yoga. He made, yeah. it, he made it sound like he made it up. He didn't. But yeah. the difference with Mill is that he thought that the reason you do this is because it results in happiness. The, the reason you do anything in yoga is because so he was a consequentialist. The reason you do anything in yoga is because of the devotion. That's what gives it meaning. It's your own commitment to sovereignty that gives it meaning. So you can weather failures and uh, not accomplishing things. You know, that's just what it is to really work on something and to become really good. You have to put up with a lot of disappointment. And you can't do that if you don't find meaning in the devotional practice. The virtue ethicist thinks that you, it gets, from a yoga perspective, gets things backwards. They think you have to kind of be perfected already in order to know what to do. So then it's a big problem. I said, well, what if I'm not, what if I'm not perfect? What if I'm not good? How do I figure this out? And so what virtue ethicists do is they just choose someone as their virtue, but virtue, sure. their virtuous agent. But the problem is if you, if you're not virtuous, 
how can you figure that out? Like the theory says that the right thing to do is what the virtuous person wants. And you've already come to terms with your lack of virtue. Then according to the theory, you are not in a position to determine who is virtue. So virtue ethicists then start doing nutty stuff. They just decide someone and there's yeah. no reason and everybody else is bad. <laughs> because yeah. it's a completely irrational uh, posture to be in the theory basically says that unless you're perfect in this respect you're not competent to to make decisions about the topic at hand right so i think this is where the weird um pyramid schemes and cults in western yoga come from they're basically yes. they take the model from plato and the republic he says should be a philosopher king at the top of this pyramid yes. scheme and then uh Curriculum is just basically what the guy at the top says. And then you show you learn by mastering that curriculum and then you can move up the ladder, right? And you see lots of yoga outfits, yoga, quote unquote, yoga outfits doing that. Yeah. It's so, it's just part of uh, the subscars of being Western. Yes. That when people don't really want to do, do that work, they just, they, they mistakenly think that the problem was that they were Christian or something. So now they just have to go find an Indian version of the same thing. No, the problem was the yes. virtue ethics, right? That was the problem. Yeah. And just because now you have a brown dude kind of bossing, it's just, you know, it just sets up all this context for abuse. And, uh, you know, am I surprised? No, but it's also not yoga. So, but it's really culturally part of the Western tradition. And it's, it's very interesting that you say that because when you set up virtue ethics in that way, right, so there's a good person and then there's all of us who are following the alleged determined good person, right. there's, a com there's a comfort in that. There's a comfort in saying that there is here is good, here is not yeah. good, and I no longer have to think about it. It sort of right. divorces But it's only one side <laughs> of the story. So the, what you're describing is when we when we choose ignorance which is interpretation explanation yes. in terms of our belief we form this sense of self on the basis of that perspective and that leads to klesha yeah affliction trauma yes. and that's described as a kind of pendulum between like highs and lows so on the one hand you're going to feel comforted by just that problem's been taken off your hand on yes. the other hand you're going to have to deal with all the existential question of why that guy yeah. why this is and then that's when the anxiety is going to show up because you don't have the skills to answer that question because it was a stupid decision in the first place right so <laughs> what people do is they isolate themselves they create these kind of bubble these like um these echo chambers um yes. satsang they do all these nutty things where they yes. think that it's just about hanging out with other people who drink the same kool-aid Yep. So I agree. On one hand, there is a certain comfort, but there's another side to it that uh, is there, too. So, you know, where I see this show up most often, and I will say this because this is the, the crowd I hang out with, the social justice world. Yes. They, it, and, and it drives me nuts because I'm like, wait, sure. aren't we supposed to be the thinkers? Yeah. And, and we've just created a good and a not good. Yeah. And I so yeah, I think there's two sides. I think there's that. So where we learn actually about social justice historically is actually the Yoga Sutra. It comes, Yoga Sutra kind of influences Gandhi's uh, civil rights, uh, sorry, direct action, civil disobedience, ends up being a model for Martin Luther King, the American civil rights movement. And then it just becomes like a way, like a background for thinking about disrupting uh, 
ingested. That's well, that's what's taught in the Yemens, right? You disrupt the yeah. systemic harm to reveal the facts that people are not deprived of what their of their needs, their personal boundaries uh, protected, and no one's hoarding or colonizing. But I think that there's, but that's hard work. That's really hard work because that's yogic work. You have to think about your own your own prejudices, your own samskaras that are stopping you from you know, living, living the free life. But when you are actually uh, doing that, you're just doing, you're just doing what's good for you. There's a, you're not, you're not engaging in uh, social justice because there's an end. It's just your practice, right? So I think about like Rosa Parks, just deciding she's going to sit on a bus where she chooses. She's doing that for herself. Sure. It upsets everybody else, but like she was making a decision that was good for her. And so I think that's just what their actual practice is. What I think happens is that people, they want, you're right, a lot of people latch on to this because it gives them a sense of being a good person. Yeah. And then they know, and then yes. everybody who isn't kind of agreeing with them is a bad person, right? <laughs> yes. And, um, and then, but they lack the skills to really deal with the, with the problem, right? Like I find myself constantly holding back. I can just bark out orders ceasefire now i think some people have to say these things they have to stand up and say things that are timely but i also think that the harder work is like why are we here why is it that these are the options we're presented with and then we as though we have to pick us up like what's going on with respect to all of our samskaras and the systemic harm where these are the options and that's much harder personal work Right. And it's quiet work. It's not ostentatious. It's not, uh, you know, it, you're not you're not putting yourself up on a soapbox. But when you speak, like you say, you'll tend to annoy a lot of people like when you actually come out with something well thought out. But the difference is, you know, where your space is. And that's the space that you made for yourself. The other people, they just they're trying to. They're parasites. They're like, oh, Black Lives Matter. I'm going to be a good person. <laughs> right. They're not thinking about the work they need to do to make this a permanent reality. They just think, oh, I went to the protest. <laughs> right. Like, right. I've said yeah. often it's become a system of checkboxes. And, yes. and it's been sold and marketed as a system yes. of checkboxes as well. So there, there is some influencing. I feel like it's the same with the yoga, right? We can still take yes. it back. We can yes. still take it back, but people don't because... I do think that they want to say, I'm a good person. I went to the, you know, the Black Lives Matter yes. protest. So I'm not racist. <laughs> I don't yes. have to deal with my stars or whatever. Right. Or I'm I'm a good person. I'm a good yoga teacher. I don't say namaste at the end of class. You know, yeah, like, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there Can are I some people. Okay. So there are some people who have found uh, a calling of just kind of, I think of them as like the aunt, the auntie, the South Asian auntie, or <laughs> they just kind of <laughs> constantly scolding you for doing this or that. Yes. And some people like that. They want to just be told, oh, I'm not, I'm I'm good. I'm not saying namaste. I'm like, it just means hello. <laughs> like, if you say it, say it, but why do you think there's something, like, why aren't you doing the work yeah. of, why did I ever think that that was something very yogic, right? Or yes. that the actual work that you need to do to do the decolonization is not just, I'm not going to say namaste. It's like, why did I think saying hello in, in Sanskrit was like, different from saying it in English <laughs> and I've always thought like in that particular topic I'm like is this the hill we're dying on today well, for this? yeah <laughs> well you know I think there see this is the thing all of these ways that people have to kind of be very superficial there's something there I think the dress up I'm South Asian look at me I'm South Asian thing is and I talk about this in my in my book 
I call it Western appropriated culture. So what this phenomenon does is it takes South Asian culture, but then appropriates it for Western models of political organization, basically mm -hmm. virtue ethics and all these other things. Yeah. And so people then like to like dress up as though they're South Asian and say South Asian things, but the the moral, the, the ethics and the politics of what they are celebrating with this is actually just very Western. So I think that the, the question is like, why do you think that pretending you're South Asian is a sign of knowledge? Oh, I can tell you, Aristotle. Because there's a virtue that's a specific yeah. virtue that's, that's, that says that, well, you have to be raised in the appropriate environment in order for you to know anything. So if you have this Aristotelian samskara, you think that, oh, well, presenting myself as South Asian is evidence that I know about yoga. But that's Aristotle. No one in South Asia would have thought that dressing up like a South Asian meant that you know what <laughs> everybody dressed up like <laughs> South Asian doesn't mean everybody knows about yoga everybody would say namaste it doesn't mean they're like so stupid people don't even think that, like is does this really mean this that if I show up with incense that I know <laughs> like would South Asians yes. have thought that right like I just but people don't want to do this work because it's because well you know there's a kind of a fragility that shows up when you're interpreting and yeah. yeah, there's a lot of discomfort there. There's a lot yeah. of, I mean, you have to live with the tension, right? Until it works itself out in your brain. And I wish like, I mean, for as much as I enjoy philosophical thought, my uncle is a philosophy professor. And so like, I've been raised with sort of this thought. It doesn't just come, like you don't just realize something and then you're like, oh, well, now I'm done thinking about it. Yeah, there's yeah. a long work. time of tension. Yeah, there. for sure. And that's it's uncomfortable. Yeah. So this is where this is the tapas. You're, you know, you, in this in the simplification, the clarity. I never understood. I remember when I was younger, people would say things like that. They would say like, "Well, all the all the research accomplishments and most disciplines happen when you're like 30, but not in philosophy. It happens much later." Um, and I didn't appreciate it. It was always something very simple. You would come to understand, but you would have to spend decades getting rid of the cobwebs and all of your samskaras preventing you from seeing. That's our work. We need to do that work. Um, and it's easy work to do if you're committed to this practice. What else are you going to do? <laughs> right? so, I mean, yeah, you're already here. You might as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's your choice. You're choosing to do this practice. So then you should, you know, the whole, the whole, I think it also just falls back on like, oh, I have to, I have to know what I'm doing. I'm like, no, that's part of the practice, figuring it out, right? Like, that's what yeah. it is to be a student. You don't yeah. know what you're doing in advance of learning. Yeah, I um, think it also, there's something really powerful for us as teachers to model for our students, the act of figuring it out, like. Yeah, and being a student, like. Yeah. I don't have the answer to everything, right? And I, it's wrong, you know, the, think about the, the, I see people who try and teach the yoga philosophy components, like even as a graduate student in philosophy, I had a BA and an MA and I was working on a PhD. It wasn't easy. Like I had to deal with myself and I had way more training than most people who decide they're going to teach yes. Like with Gita, I was working on a dissertation. Like I was, I was treating my committees as colleagues, right? Like I was operating a different. It was still hard. So I think if people could stop thinking that they have to be the experts, a right, yes. because yes. they're not, and um, but then I think they have to take the responsibility. And this is, I think, a little hard to actually figure out 
who does know what they're talking about. And in the yoga world is just, well, it's the same, it's a huge scam, right? Like just cause I'm a Sanskritist, just because I'm an English major doesn't mean that I can be a Bertrand Russell scholar. Bertrand Russell wrote in English, right? But right, it doesn't mean right. just because I'm an English major, I can tell you about Bertrand Russell, right? Uh, or Hobbes or Locke. Or, yes. So just because you know Sanskrit doesn't mean that you have the skills to understand philosophy. But this is the big scam in yoga studies and um, South Asian studies. You have people, but it's just part of the yoga scam, right? There's so many people who are PhD and then they're doctor so-and-so. And then you find it has nothing to do with the Teaching, right? like, so they got it online you know, yeah <laughs> it's like, just I mean, nuts right so yes. taking that responsibility to find oh is this person actually doing research in this topic are they actually trained to do this kind of work and there's very like, like virtually no one right so i appreciate yes. i appreciate that that's hard but like at least you should be looking and going oh this guy is just a linguist next or <laughs> like you know you know his phd is <laughs> in sanskrit next uh yes. but but people, you know, that see, this is it's easy when you're doing yoga because you're committed to this independence. You're not looking for someone to be your boss, right? Yeah. But if you're if you're like doing the virtues, you literally are looking for someone to be your boss. Yeah. Okay. So I hear more tension, right? So you're looking for so the goal being like look for an expert. There are very few experts. Yes you see those experts and you hear okay so i'm i've listened to this podcast with dr ranganathan and he's talked about this thing i'll never be him I'll, now yeah, i'll never be all sorts of smarter people <laughs> but actually i think i think that's wrong i think so you won't you don't have to be me to understand what i understand and if you can learn from me, you don't have to take 30 years to figure it out. So that's the advantage of finding someone who's done the work. Like they, they make things a lot quicker because yes. when I teach, I don't give you all my life experience. <laughs> I just got to go, here's the mistake. This is the right way of doing it across the board. Now apply it. Right. And so I'm, what I'm transmitting to my students are the skills they need to go understand options. Right. So yeah, you but why would you want to be like it was a, it was hell. <laughs> like I don't recommend <laughs> it. <laughs> what I had to go through to figure out what I did, right? Like I if someone else was there who kind of just had this figured out, I would have learned from them. But the difference is when you learn from an actual expert. So an expert is someone is different from an authority. An authority has the power to enforce an opinion. An expert is someone who can sort out a controversy. When you learn from an expert, they will they will provide you or indicate the research skills you need in order to understand the controversy. They're not just giving you things to memorize, right? So they're actually sharing and it's not, there's no stinginess in it. They just, you know, I've been watching these amazing researchers online now, especially in light of like the what's going on in Palestine and Israel. And there are all these researchers who've been doing this great work it's not popular, but like you listen to them, they'll tell you about their research methodology. They'll tell you about the data that they looked at, right? And so when they come to a conclusion, it isn't just how they feel about it. They basically set out and then they're like, you can go do this too, right? Um, so that's what an expert does. And you, but you have to want, you have to want to learn from an expert. Most people yeah. like we, you know, just noted they don't. <laughs> because yeah. expert downloads the responsibility to you to figure things out. 
Yes. And that's really important. I yes. think that that's something that I've sort of worked out in, in my business, like, because I spent a lot of years trying to mentally work out what it means to charge people money for a philosophy and discipline that is not from my culture, not from my practice that I've learned. Right. And so mm -hmm. how I've worked is I was like, yoga gives generously. If my teacher gave generously to me. I will give generously to my students and I charge people for something else. I charge people because my space is really pretty and it's very nice. <laughs> I remind you to turn your cell phone off and I serve you tea because tea is nice and you mm -hmm. pay me for that experience, but yeah. the yoga is free. The yoga will always be free because we give generously that's a lovely way to put it i think you deserve also compensation for i don't think there's anything on yoga because yoga is not about self-sacrifice right so you can so as a researcher i share a lot of knowledge like i'm here i, I do this i just share stuff yeah. but my time with you as a student where we're you know if you decide to be a student then then that's i'm charging you for my time then I think there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't be doormats. However, when you do this, when you're really doing this, you also know that there's all sorts of like my students can go read what I've written. My students can go watch pockets. So they don't have to study with me. But if they're choosing to, right, I, my time needs compensation because otherwise, uh, how am I going to afford to do this? Right? It's just like I I can't afford to just talk to students all the time like Socrates. <laughs> who couldn't afford it either, except he had a bunch of benefactors. <laughs> but I, I love the way you, you so, put yeah. it, because the yoga itself, the knowledge is always free. It's not a, it's not yeah. a commodity you can stingily uh, hold on to. No. Because that's your way of looking no, at it. No, but that doesn't mean there aren't. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Sorry, I think there was just a Zoom thing. I just think the knowledge is never, is always free. Uh, but, you know, our time and our efforts, that can't be, we can't afford to make those free. Yeah. So tell people where to find you so they can pay you to study with you. Ah, yeah. So you, so yogaphilosophy.com is my website. And so uh, I have my courses up there. I have a 100 hour uh, level one certification, which is kind of my entry for like, you could take any course with me, but that seems to me like that's like, if people are like, how do I take it up a level? That's what I would recommend. I also, I'm on Instagram, yoga philosophy underscore com. And so I do a lot of philosophy there. And, um, you know, on my website, I have like links to my readings, my bibliography, a lot of the stuff is online. So you can, you can go there and find stuff I've written, etc. too. Um, links to videos. Yeah. Awesome. I loved this conversation today. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for so much me. for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Ranganathan. Here are our key takeaways. First, when you're faced with someone who is speaking a truth that you don't like or makes you uncomfortable, take a few moments to reflect what part of you is having trouble reconciling what they have to say. One of the most potent things that we can do as yoga practitioners is to get very good at figuring out what things we need to work on in ourselves and what things are simply not a part of our own belief system. Next, virtue ethics is a Western mode of thinking that asks us to start with the quote-unquote right person, 
where we choose a person that we deem to be right, and then we do what they say. Yoga, conversely, asks us to start with the idea of right doing, and then you spend a lifetime practicing the essential traits of right doing as you see them, not as someone else sees them. Next, the customer is always right is a difficult thing to utilize when you're teaching something because the customer doesn't always know what they need. So take that into consideration when you are making marketing plans for your business. You've got to know and understand what yoga is really about so that once customers come in the door, you can teach them. Next, and I'm going to quote Dr. Ranganathan here, yoga is subversive. I love this so much, y'all. And the beginning of this journey is dissatisfaction. So once you get people in the door, you can share with them what we're actually doing here. This, to me, was one of the most freeing things that Dr. Ranganathan said, that we can market and run our businesses effectively within the scope and ethics of yoga. In fact, it might be easier than we think. And finally, good leadership requires vulnerability, and it is a difficult thing to manage. If you are in charge of other people in the yoga space as a studio owner, festival owner, or teacher trainer, make sure that you figure out how to hold the tension between having healthy professional boundaries and allowing other people to see your weaknesses and mistakes. It is something that I am challenged with daily. So if you're struggling here, I am with you, but we will figure this out together. Our first step is to make sure that we are being a serious and dedicated yoga student. Thank you so much for listening to Working in Yoga, friends. I am always humbled and grateful that you are here. Up next week, we have a conversation with Anne Swanson, author of the book, The Science of Yoga, and newly upcoming book, Meditation for the Real World. Anne talks to us about being a recovering perfectionist herself and also shares with us a simple meditation that we can use to help guide us on our journey of releasing attachment to our perfection. You are going to love her. And I will see you around the water cooler then.